0: Today we start a multi-part series on imperialism. We're going to be talking about Lenin's principal thesis, Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism, and the new book, Imperialism in the 21st Century, updating Lenin's theory a century later. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Real Story on The Socialist Program. I'm Brian Becker. I'm joined today by Walter Smolarik. Walter, join me and others in helping to write a book called Imperialism in the 21st Century, Updating Lenin's Theory a Century Later. We'll discuss the core ideas from this book and weigh in on how the situation has further evolved since Lenin's publication more than a century ago. Walter, welcome back. Glad to be here. I mean, Walter, as you know, for anti-war people, for social justice activists, for people in the labor movement, especially for those political and social forces fighting for revolutionary or radical change in the United States, the center of world imperialism, it's critically important to have a clear vision or political understanding of what imperialism is. I can remember as a kid. People my age and people in that generation—we were all learning about war up close because of the Vietnam War. If you were 12 or 13 in 1965 or 1966, and then you were a little bit older a couple years later, it was very likely that you might be drafted and go to Vietnam and fight. And so people were thinking about U.S. foreign policy. They were thinking about the war. They were coming out against the war. They. They finally decided in large measure that the war was a terrible mistake. But then those in the socialist movement, those in the Marxist movement, those who had read the writings of Vladimir Lenin, for instance, and in his book, Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism, came to the same conclusion or were won over to Lenin's conclusion that the war in Vietnam was not a mistake, like the other wars conducted by the United States, at least in the modern era, not a mistake but rather the byproduct of a system. The system is capitalism, but a particular stage of capitalism, monopoly capitalism, which Lenin said is in the briefest, most succinct way, is a correct understanding of what imperialism is. Imperialism, the modern imperialism, the imperialism of our age is monopoly capitalism. So, Walter, this was an important book. We decided that we'd write this book because while Lenin's core concepts, core ideas as part of that brilliant polemic that he wrote in 1916 against those in the socialist movement who had supported their own imperialist governments during the first imperialist world war, that brilliant polemic also needed updating because as one would expect a century later, a lot has changed in the world But the imperialist system, in spite of its different sort of manifestations, different stages, different phases, it's still at its core imperialism. Anyway, you wrote the first chapter of this book, and I think the name of that chapter is Learning from Lenin's Imperialism 100 Years Later. Now, as we go through this multi-part series, I want to be able to go over some core definitions and again, we'll try to put Lenin's book into context. Why did he write it? What was going on? What were the debates and controversies in 1916 that so divided the socialist movement? But let's just start with some sort of core definitions. Let's walk people through what Lenin meant by imperialism. Of course, imperialism as a term has been coined to describe the actions of different social systems or political entities, going back to the Roman Empire, like 2,000 years ago, the Roman Empire and Roman imperialism. But Lenin's talking about modern-day imperialism. Let's just go over some of the core characteristic features that Lenin identified so that we can begin this
1: process of definition. Well, Lenin pointed out five characteristic features of imperialism. So one, the concentration of production and capital, has developed to such a high stage that it has created monopolies which play a decisive role in economic life. Two, the merging of bank capital with industrial capital and the creation on the basis of this financial capital of a financial oligarchy. The export of capital as distinguished from the export of commodities acquires exceptional importance. Four, the formation of international monopolist capitalist associations which share the world among themselves, and five, the territorial division of the whole world among the biggest capitalist powers is completed. And Lenin also wrote, if it were necessary to give the briefest possible definition of imperialism, we should have to say that imperialism is the monopoly stage of capitalism.
0: One thing, Walter, that I think is very important is that he writes this book in 1916. It's not a long theoretical document. It's not like Marx's capital. In many ways, it's an essay. It's an outline. He's not even doing his own original research. He's using the research of others. But it's part of a polemic against different currents. And they were really the majority current in the socialist movement at that time, who in spite of their earlier solemn pledges not to support their own government should their own government engage in a global war, as happened in, finally in 1914 in World War One, in spite of their pledges not to do so, they all capitulated during the early days of the war, when the war fever was high, when everyone was enlisting, when people were going off and being Killed or killing other people in other countries where nationalist fervor was so high. He wrote this as a polemic to say no matter what, each of these different capitalist governments, each of them, no matter what they say, no matter what form their government is, whether it's a monarchy, whether it's a parliamentary democracy, whether it's something in between, they're all at their core, they have predatory aims, meaning. None of them can be actually fighting for a progressive purpose. So if you support your government, no matter what your rationale, you're supporting the reactionary system of imperialism. Anyway, let's just talk about why and how that struggle plays
1: out. Yeah, that's right, Brian. I mean, the different social democratic parties, which were what the Marxist parties were called at the time, all of the different social democratic parties of Europe in their majority came up with one excuse or another to explain why, while they maintained a general opposition to imperialism, this war was different. That's something that still happens to this day. So for instance, if you were in France or in Britain, capitalist countries that had parliaments that had, you know, quote unquote, democracy, you could say, well, in Germany, there's a Kaiser, there's a king. And the same is true of Germany's principal allies, Austria-Hungary and the Ottoman Empire. And so our side is the progressive side because our bourgeoisie is democratic and the other bourgeoisie is dictatorial or autocratic. And then, you know, if you were in Germany or Austria or in the Ottoman Empire, you could say, well, this is a war for national defense. Sure, we oppose our own reactionary, monarchical ruling class, but this is a war for self-defense and we can't allow the fatherland, our home country, to be subjugated. So there were these rationales that took place, but they were fundamentally a response to profound social and state pressure. The hysteria that gripped society when World War One broke out was absolutely palpable. It infected not just the ruling class, but the working class as well. And in addition to being politically and socially isolated from the working class, an anti-war position also means that you would face brutal persecution, brutal persecution by the capitalist state. It was illegal in most cases to be opposed to the war. It was illegal to encourage people not to be drafted. You would lose your seats in parliament and all of the attendant financial and political and legal privileges that go along with that. That's precisely
0: what happened to the Bolsheviks, right? They had five worker members in the Duma, which was the sort of fake parliament in Tsarist Russia. They lost their positions and they were put on trial. They were facing the death penalty because they voted against the war. Karl Liebknecht in Germany, in Germany the Socialist Party was the largest party. They had 110 delegates, one third of all the delegates in the German parliament. They had expected that as the franchise grew, meaning the right to vote for workers, they would basically create a socialist government through the electoral process. But when the war started, only one, Karl Liebknecht, actually voted no for war credits for the German government. And he was eventually both incarcerated and then drafted into the army as a punishment. Eugene Debs, he spoke out against the war when the U.S. was a late entry into the war. The U.S. entered the war in 1917, three years after it started, or almost three years. And Eugene Debs was sentenced to 10 years at hard labor at age 66 because he told the workers, don't go and kill your fellow workers. I mean, there's a couple of things that might be hard for our current contemporary audience to understand about the pressure is that all of the socialists had said ahead of time at the Basel Congress in 1912 and earlier when they anticipated that there could be a war between the different imperialists in this repartition or redivision of the world, an already fully colonized world, they anticipated that it would happen and they solemnly pledged that they would fight against it. But you know the hysteria against the enemy becomes so great. I mean, that's not the only reason... That explains the capitulation. As a matter of fact, Lenin's book, "Imperialism: The Highest Stage of Capitalism," talks about what the economic basis is for the opportunist reaction to the war, the capitulation by the socialists to the war. And we'll, in this series, we're going to talk about what the economic basis is for right wing opportunism within the socialist movement. But there's another element here that I think isn't really fully understood. In the United States, a large number of people in the so-called peace movement or anti-war movement were very hesitant to be 100% against, say, the U.S. attacks on Iraq during the first Gulf War. And we've talked about that in other episodes of The Socialist Program. In 1991, there was a split between anti-war forces who I was aligned with They were called the National Coalition to Stop U.S. Intervention in the Middle East. And we were demanding stop the war before it starts, no U.S. war against Iraq, et cetera, et cetera. The other side said, well, we can't only have that slogan because Iraq did invade Kuwait in August 1990. Iraq did seize Kuwait. Iraq tried to annex Kuwait. And we don't approve of that. So we have to condemn Iraq, but we don't want to say we're supporting a war. So what we will say instead is, and what they actually demanded and what they marched under, their banners, their placards, their chants were sanctions, not war, meaning don't bomb Iraq, but impose economic sanctions. And our argument at the time was, the U.S. is not going to go to war against Iraq because of Kuwait. That could have been easily negotiated. But even if it couldn't, Iraq and Kuwait are neighbors. Iraq's perception is that Kuwait was sort of stolen from Iraq by British colonialism. That The Iraqis actually viewed Kuwait the way the Chinese viewed Hong Kong, something that was stolen from them by British imperialism. And British imperialism put a flag on it and called it a nation. But it was actually... Part of Iraq. Anyway, that dispute between Iraq and Kuwait goes back for a long time. Our argument was look, imperialism isn't going to war against Iraq because it really needs to punish Iraq in some way. They're going to war for their own predatory purposes. They have a goal in going to war and it has nothing to do really with Kuwait. And as a consequence, we shouldn't give an inch. We shouldn't say, we disagree with the tactic of war, but we agree that there should be some punishment by the U.S., in this case, economic sanctions. That's what they were actually demanding. It's hard to believe now. We said, no, we actually favor the defeat of U.S. imperialism because we, as a working class movement, as a socialist movement in the United States, recognize that our enemies, the enemies of the U.S. working class, are not in Baghdad. They're not anywhere else. They're in Wall Street. They're in the corporate boardrooms. That Our real problem is the capitalist ruling class here. Now, that was Lenin's argument, and that had been the Socialist International's position earlier when they said that they weren't going to support their own governments. They, They, in fact, had a Congress in Basel, Switzerland, where, and I want you to read, if you could, a couple sentences from that manifesto, which was 1912 where all of these parties that eventually capitulated all swore they were going to do revolutionary things should there be a war. So they pursued a policy of what was called revolutionary defeatism. Now, it's hard in the middle of a hysteria, like in the case of the hysteria against Iraq in 1990, and Iraq had indeed invaded Kuwait, to not join in the chorus of the hysteria because the demonization of Iraq was so complete. But just think of it this way, Walter. What if Iraq had the capability not only of attacking American troops that were invading their country, but let's say they were able to bomb U.S. cities the way the U.S. was going to bomb Iraqi cities and the way the U.S. did bomb Iraqi cities. To take an anti-war position under those circumstances where your enemy is actually delivering blows, you dropping bombs on you, you know, killing people. I mean, the pressure, like the pressure that the socialists felt in World War I, where it wasn't just a one-sided massacre, but a real war where there were casualties and destruction in every country, that took a lot of guts, and very few socialists stood up under the pressure.
1: That's right. So just to read a little bit from the manifesto issued by the Congress at Basel, Switzerland, the International Socialist Congress at Basel. What the assembled parties pledged to do less than two years before the war broke out. They wrote If a war threatens to break out, it is the duty of the working classes and their parliamentary representatives in the countries involved, supported by the coordinating activity of the International Socialist Bureau, to exert every effort in order to prevent the outbreak of war by the means they consider most effective. In case war should break out anyway, it is their duty to intervene in favor of its speedy termination and with all their powers to utilize the economic and political crisis created by the war to arouse the people and thereby to hasten the downfall of capitalist class rule. So what they were essentially pledging to do less than two years before the war broke out was to have a revolution if indeed the imperialists were to send the working class of their respective countries out to kill one another, that they would vote against the war credits in parliament, that they would tell their members not to join the military, that they would organize strikes to shut down the munitions industries that sustain the war, and if necessary, initiate insurrections and actually overthrow that government that was trying to prosecute an imperialist war. But as you laid out, that is not what ended up happening.
0: Right. And because the Bolsheviks took this principled position under Lenin's leadership, as the war dragged on and on, and as the Russian workers and peasants no longer wanted to fight the war, as millions of Russians were dying, and about three million did die by 1917, ultimately there was a revolution, just as the Basil Manifesto had anticipated. And because the Bolsheviks had been true to their position, their principles against imperialism, they were able to eventually enter into really the leadership position. So here's the Bolsheviks in 1914. When the war started, they were really the strongest socialist party. The largest party was the Social Revolutionary Party. They were based on a radical peasant orientation. The Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks who had been part of the same party, but split. The Bolsheviks between 1912 and 1914 had become stronger than the Mensheviks. But in 1914, the war starts, the Bolsheviks take this principal position, like Eugene Debs, like some other socialists, including the Serbian Socialist Party, they stay true to their beliefs. Their representatives in Duma are kicked out of the Duma, kicked out of the parliament, they're put on trial, they're facing life in prison. All of the other Bolshevik leaders who are not in exile are arrested. They're sent to Siberia. Some are killed. The Mensheviks and the other groups, because they support the Russian war effort, are allowed to continue to function as socialists. So you can see the advantage that's gained. The Bolsheviks are silenced. They're repressed. The Mensheviks and the social revolutionaries who have a patriotic orientation towards the war, they're allowed to function. They get stronger. But then the revolution happens in, you know, March slash February 1917, the revolution against the Tsar. It's really because the people don't want to fight anymore. They don't want to fight. And a new provisional revolutionary government comes in and it's really supported by, bolstered by the same Mensheviks and social revolutionaries. That part of the workers movement that now says, look, we're going to continue the war because now this time... We can continue the war with a noble cause. It's no longer for the czar. It's for our new revolutionary provisional government. And the Bolsheviks say, no, it's still the same system. And we have to stop the war. And we don't need to go over all the details. But by October slash November, depending on what calendar you're using, November 7th, the Russian working class and peasantry rise up and overthrow the provisional government And have a new government led by the Bolsheviks and by the left wing of the social revolutionaries who were also had come into the Bolshevik camp. So the Russian Revolution actually becomes an anti war revolution. And then the Bolsheviks say, We're done with the war. We're not fighting anymore. The war comes to an end. It really shows that the Basel Manifesto, which was what Lenin was adhering to, in other words, a basic tenet of the second international, becomes really the compass for revolution. It shows the sagacity, the wisdom of the Basel Manifesto, but the other socialist parties succumbed to the pressure and capitulated at the beginning of the war, where it looked suicidal to take a position against the war when you were going to face such heavy, heavy repression. I mean, it's a remarkable lesson that even though staying true to your principles could mean at a moment you're terribly isolated that ultimately it was the element that vindicated the Bolshevik position and without which there would not have been a real russian revolution meaning the november second revolution the socialist revolution that is a critically important part of this story anyway there's so many different parts walter to the story that we're going to explore as we talk about the book that you and I and others co authored, Imperialism in the 21st Century. Now, in that book, we reprinted all of the texts from Lenin's original book, Imperialism, the Highest Age of Capitalism. In the first chapter, the chapter that you authored, we also go over what Lenin talked about in terms of the characteristic features of modern day capitalism. Now, one of the Big parts of his definition of imperialism. And one of the big causes of World War I was the repartition or redivision of the world, a world that had already been fully colonized, or if it wasn't an out and out colony, it was a semi colony, a sphere of influence. A handful of imperialist countries dominated Africa, dominated Latin America, dominated Asia and the Middle East. Monopoly capitalism. In their own home, countries became more and more productive. They needed a growing international market, but there was no market because each of the empires had already taken its share of the rest of the world, meaning most of the world was colonized. So World War One was a war to redivide the world for colonies. If you look at World War II, it's basically the same phenomena. I mean, when you think about who's fighting who, different blocks of countries, Axis and allied countries... Germany and Japan were fighting to get colonies that had been monopolized by Britain and France. And of course, the United States aligned itself with Britain and France against Germany, Japan, and Italy. Anyway, we could see that both World War I and World War II were essentially the same. I mean, the big difference in World War II was that there was now one Giant socialist country, the USSR, which did not have colonies, which in fact was, you know, a tribune for the colonized, an advocate for self determination and freedom and sovereignty and national liberation. And it was the Soviets who fought German imperialism, took on 80% of the German divisions, who principally defeated Nazism in Europe and helped liberate Eastern and Central Europe. But anyway, World War 1, World War 2, again a repeat in World War 2 of the phenomena of the imperialists fighting each other in different blocks over who would control which territory because the world was fully colonized. But Walter, one of the elements of the book that we co-authored with others was that after World War 2, that feature of the imperialist epic shifted, meaning the colonized became independent countries. And yet, in many ways, colonialism, out-and-out out colonialism, where Britain controlled entire countries lock, stock, and barrel and had a monopoly on trade with those countries, and the same with France, etc. We then witnessed the phenomena of what Nkrumah called neocolonialism. Anyway, a profoundly different era, but still the same system of monopoly capitalism.
1: That's right. And it was the consequence, this shift from colonialism to neocolonialism, retaining its core imperialist character, but shifting in terms of tactics, essentially. The key motivating factor behind this was the socialist revolutions that took place in the aftermath of both world imperialist wars. As you laid out, one of the key consequences of the First World War it's certainly attributable to the horrors of the First World War, was the Soviet Union, the existence of the Soviet Union. So now socialism went from being a concept, you know, that maybe was put into practice for a few months in Paris in 1871, but but essentially a concept that's yet to be tried on a large scale, to being, you know, a living, breathing force in world politics, the Soviet Union, which completely reorganized world politics. So that was something that's certainly bad for imperialism, even though the French and the British and the U.S. colonists got to eat up the colonies, the colonial possessions of the defeated imperialist powers and brutally exploit the people and resources there. Instead, they had this huge political problem because now there was a Soviet Union. The same was true at the end of World War II, but even more intensely so Because now, instead of having the imperialist war leading to a socialist revolution, now there is a block of socialist countries that existed in the world. You had, in the immediate aftermath of World War II, you had revolutions in Vietnam, in Korea, in Yugoslavia, the establishment of socialist countries in Poland, East Germany, elsewhere in Eastern Europe, and you had, most significantly, the Chinese Revolution in 1949. Just like most of the fighting took place between Germany and the Soviet Union in the European theater of World War II, most of the fighting in the Pacific theater of World War II took place not between the US and Japan, but between China and Japan. And one of the principal protagonist there was the Chinese Communist Party. They were able to lead a revolution a few years after the conclusion of the war. So the imperialists had an even bigger problem at the end of World War II. Even though some won and some lost, there was now a block of socialist states to contend with. And so it became necessary, essentially necessary, for the imperialist countries to essentially band together and fight as an imperialist united front against the socialist countries of the world and against the rising national liberation movements, many of which were socialists, I would say most of which were socialists, that also emerged in that period or gained tremendous strength in that period following World War II. The United States, U.S. imperialism was the principal architect of this shift. Early on in the war, there's something called the Atlantic Charter. And then there were a number of major conferences that the U.S. helped convene the Yalta Conference, Tehran, the Bretton Woods Conference that essentially set the shape of the post-war world. And core to that is this new neocolonial model where rather than being the exclusive possessions of one or another imperialist power, you know, Nigeria being a British colony, Indonesia being a Dutch colony, the Philippines being a U.S. colony, These colonies would be granted nominal independence to political forces if, you know, the imperialist powers could help it, to political forces that were basically aligned with imperialism amenable to the exploitation of their countries by Western corporations. And then all of those different capitalists, the capitalist enterprises in the various imperialist countries, would compete peacefully for market share in all of the oppressed countries, rather than having their business exclusively reserved, restricted to the countries that were the possession of their home imperialist bourgeoisie.
0: Right. So let's, again, frame this. We're talking about Lenin's book, What is Still Relevant, What Changes After World War II. The world obviously becomes decolonized, but then impacted by neocolonialism and also the rise of the socialist bloc. So you have the Soviet Union. Again, they come out of World War II stronger, even though they lost 27 million people. 27 million people. The U.S., by comparison, lost 400,000, which is terrible. But compared to 400,000 or 450,000 deaths to 27 million. China also lost an equivalent number, about 25, 30 million people. Germany lost about 8 million, a similar number in Japan. I mean, World War II, all of the capitalist countries that were fighting to expand their market were actually destroyed by the war. So the Allies were destroyed. The Axis powers were destroyed. You know, not completely destroyed in the case of, say, Britain, but, you know, Britain was bombed heavily. But the United States comes out of the war not bombed. None of its cities are lying in ruins. Its factories are not destroyed. Yes, it lost many, many young people who were in the U.S. military, not as many as the other countries. But basically, the U.S. became the war supplier of the world. And the rest of the world, and especially Europe and Japan, destroyed. So the United States recreates a new world order at that time. So U.S. imperialism takes the helm. British imperialism had been the dominant imperialism, but now it's basically finished based on the ravages of the war and also the anti-colonial movements whereby the British Empire, which in prior times, the sun never set on the British Empire, meaning it was everywhere. Well, it was starting to contract very rapidly. So the U.S. is basically unharmed by the war. Its factories are humming, and it really brings all of the capitalist powers, including the enemies, including Japan and Germany. It brings them back on their feet. It occupies them, but it rebuilds them. It doesn't do to Germany or Japan what was done to Germany when it lost World War One, which was having international sanctions from the Versailles accords imposed on Germany, which created hyperinflation and eventually led to the victory of Hitler, the U.S. did not want to do that. It did not want to continue to sort of punish or weaken Japan and Germany. It wanted to actually restore them as powers, but with a new idea that there would be a unipolar world, the U.S. would be the leader, the hegemon of world capitalism, the earlier multipolarity of imperialism, which led to World War I and World War II, meaning many centers of power, multiple centers of power competing for a world that was already carved up, the territories carved up by all of the colonial powers had colonized or semi-colonized everything, that multipolarity led to unmanaged rivalries and finally the breakout of war in nineteen fourteen, World War I, and then the breakout of World War II 20 years later. And after World War II, just like after World War One, the outcome was revolution. Like in World War One, the outcome was the Russian Revolution, the first socialist communist-led revolution. After World War Two, as you mentioned, China, you know, North Korea, North Vietnam. The Eastern and Central European governments, with the exception of Yugoslavia, didn't have their own revolution per se, but they were had a revolutionary transformation as a consequence of the Red Army, the Soviet Army occupying them. Yugoslavia actually did have its own indigenous revolution. In Czechoslovakia, a semi-revolution in 1948. But nonetheless, my point is that by 1948, two-fifths of the world's population are now living in socialist led governments. In the world, because of the devastation of World War II, the United States, which has 5% of the world's population by in 1945, 46, is producing 50% of the world gross product. In other words, 50% of all production in the world is being conducted by this country with only 5% of the world's people. So the US has this amazing advantage and privilege. And it says to all of the countries, Britain and France, who were its allies, Germany and Japan, who were its enemies, and Italy, which had been an enemy to all of the capitalist powers, we're going to let you come back. We're in fact going to use the Marshall Plan and U.S. money and the newly created World Bank and the newly created International Monetary Fund, which were two of the three legs, the third of the new U.S.-led world order being the United Nations itself. So we're gonna use the UN, the IMF, the World Bank, and allow you to recover. And the quid pro quo is you're gonna recover, you're gonna get rich again, you're gonna be able to you know, use neocolonial policies in Africa, in Asia, in the Middle East, in Latin America. You're gonna get rich again, you're gonna rebuild again, but we're not gonna have multipolarity, we're gonna have a unipolar world, and you're gonna be our junior partner. But of course, it became, Walter, a bipolar world, not a multipolar world, but bipolar in the sense that there was a socialist camp on one side that was anti-imperialist and supporting the anti-colonial revolutions and national liberation movements in the so-called third world, facing off against all of the capitalist countries together now as a united front, an imperialist united front but under US domination. So the US had hope for a unipolar world, but the rise of the socialist bloc, which they did not anticipate earlier in the war and earlier in World War II, but became a reality by 1945 and certainly by 1949. Now it's a bipolar world. So imperialism goes through these different stages. And this is what we want to cover in our multi-part series. Between Christopher Columbus's voyage to the so-called New World, the beginning of colonialism, and of course with it the slave trade of for African people and the genocide that's perpetrated against the indigenous populations of both South and Central and North America. That's the beginning of the era of colonialism, but colonialism for the first couple hundred years is a policy by some countries and by some corporations like the British East Indies Company or the Dutch East Indies Company, whose own navies, whose corporate navies and corporate armies were actually bigger than the armies and navies of the home country. It was a policy. It was becoming a dominant part of world politics, but it was a policy. Lenin says in his book, in Imperialism, The Highest Stage of Capitalism, that around the 1870s or the 1880s, when the entire world is partitioned when all of the world is now colonized or semi-colonized, when all of the capitalists, the major capitalist countries have seen the same economic transformative processes whereby the banks take control over industrial capital, meaning finance capital starts to reign supreme, where small scattered production leads to monopoly. So you have finance capital and monopoly capital, and also the need to redivide the world as the capitalists fight each other. That's When imperialism goes from being a policy to a system, a global system, modern day monopoly capitalism. And then there's another stage of imperialism after World War II, multipolarity and unmanaged rivalries that led to one world war after another between the imperialists is channeled into a united front of all of the imperialists under the leadership of the United States against the socialist bloc countries who are aligned with the anti-colonial movements of the people in what was called the third world. So that's a new stage of imperialism which the, you know, we know in a popular vernacular as the Cold War. It wasn't that cold if you lived in Korea. It wasn't that cold if you lived in Vietnam. It wasn't that cold if you lived in Guatemala or Iran or the Dominican Republic. It wasn't that cold if you were in a Congo. It was a hot war for many, many places, a bloody, brutal hot war. But that is the era of the Cold War. And when we come back, Walter, and pick this story up in our next segment, we're going to talk about the next phase of imperialism, what might be called the unipolar phase. So we had the multipolarity of imperialists fighting each other, then the bipolarity of the U.S. imperialism leading a a unified imperialist camp against the socialist bloc, and then after the implosion of the Soviet Union and the overthrow of the socialist governments in Eastern and Central Europe, the beginning of what the U.S. hoped would be a unipolar world, a true unipolar world, the thing that they had hoped for in 1945, they thought they were finally getting in 1991. And it leads to a reshaping of U.S. foreign policy and ultimately the takeover by what we now call the neocon consensus dominating U.S. foreign policy, leading to wars in Iraq, twice in Afghanistan, against Libya, Syria, you name it. Anyway, when we come back, Walter, we're going to continue our look at Lenin's teachings, the book that we helped write, Imperialism in the 21st century. But we'll pick up by looking at what appeared to be a unipolar
1: era for U.S. imperialism. Yeah, that's right, Brian. And they were so ecstatic. They were so elated by the fact that they had won the Cold War, that the Soviet Union had been overthrown, and they felt that they were finally on the cusp of this dream of total world domination, of unchallenged hegemony over the entire world, that you get this concept that listeners might have heard referenced before, the end of history, the end of history, They there is a book written by this guy named Francis Fukuyama. It was very popular. Its core thesis was embraced by many bourgeois intellectuals and political leaders at the time. And they thought that they had actually won history, that the struggle for power in society was over, and that U.S. quote-unquote liberal democracy, meaning U.S. imperialism, the U.S. dominated world system, would reign forever unchallenged. I mean, this is the kind of unbelievable imperial hubris That the imperialists embraced its highest expression, maybe the Bush administration and the neocon establishment that took full control of U.S. foreign and military policy at that time. But that's really what it was rooted in, this idea that finally U.S. imperialism had made it. They stood alone among all the other capitalist empires and could call the shots without anybody else interfering. It was, of course, a complete fantasy, but that's really what a lot of them believed.
0: Right. The crowning achievement of the human race was that we would all, after going through evolutionary social changes, we would all be able to live under the rule of a few American billionaires. Anyway, you are right, Walter. It's a fantasy. We're going to keep this topic going, especially for activists in the United States, for people who want change in the United States. We're fighting for affordable housing. We're fighting to cancel the rents. We're fighting to avoid evictions. We're fighting for. Uh, canceling student debt, social justice, higher wages. But we have to root our struggle for justice in the United States in a perspective that clearly understands that imperialism is a global system, that the country we live in, the government that says it speaks in our name, the U.S. government, is in fact the center of the world imperialist system. And so our movements for justice have to be internationalist, and they have to be anti-imperialist. Anyway, we'll pick this up next time you're listening to The Socialist Program. We'll be back on Tuesday with our episode called In the News. at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an
1: invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with-